This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Galaxies we hear, so down I can see your so Hi everybody and welcome back to Tell Me This. I'm Brianne Roos here with Carrie Barkowski and a wonderful guest, uh, Dr. Vicki Garofola. And before we start, Carrie and I are working on our new intro, so I'm <laughs> going to give that to us today. So for our new listeners, this is a podcast about all things belonging, community, connections, collaboration, and holding space for what is possible. Over the life of this pod, we've explored research and scholarship on or related to belonging, shared stories, listened and engaged with diverse individuals about belonging during the pandemic, as parents, as leaders, as human beings who show up for all the things. This season, we're journeying into belonging in our relationships, friends, spouses, coworkers, neighbors, all levels. And today, we're super excited to welcome Dr. Vicki Garofola. She is a licensed clinical social worker who focuses on the needs of system-involved adolescents, teens, and young adults. She has lived experience as a foster parent and as someone who has experienced her own mental health challenges as a youth. She recently graduated with her doctorate in education from Johns Hopkins University, completing a dissertation about the educational persistence of students with welfare, child welfare involvement. She's passionate about creating systemic change, empowering young people, and destigmatizing mental health. She's the founder and executive director of a new nonprofit organization, Inspiring Futures, that supports and uplifts youth currently in or with a history of child welfare involvement. So Vicki, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So Vicki, we always start with just kind of a casual question. Just wanna check in and see how you're doing. So how are you? How's your family? How are things? Things are going really well. Um, in New York, it's going to drop down to the single digits this weekend, but we have a few more days of 30 degrees weather and it's sunny. <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> I know it's like, it's like literally going to be negative, what, 11, something like that they were predicting. Mm-hmm. What about you, Carrie? What about you up there? Oh yeah. It's, they said it's going to be minus three tomorrow. So, you oh. know, it's going to be lovely. <laughs> It is sunny though today, which I agree, uh, Vicki, it's, it's kind of beautiful and freezing cold. So, and congratulations are in order, doctor, another doctor in the house. Yes. It's very, Thank very you so cool. much. Yes. It's very, very cool. And we're really excited to have you on the pod to hear probably a little bit about, about your research, but also this new adventure that I feel like has sort of been bubbling up for you, right? This nonprofit that you're doing. So can't wait to dig into that. So When you think about all of your experiences, you know, your journey, your own mental health journey, working as a foster parent, your doc studies, the nonprofit, like how does that inform 
your understanding and definition of belonging? Absolutely. So I think belonging is the foundation of everything wellness and mental health. Um, I think back to being a child, a teenager, um, and the coming out process as being part of uh, being a lesbian. And I didn't have any role models that were part of the LGBTQ community, not personally or on TV, no adults in my life. So I didn't even know that that community existed until probably grad school. And that's when I finally felt like, wow, I belong somewhere. And up until then, a lot of it was trying to figure out what was wrong with me and like finding out that nothing was wrong with me. It was all part of like, where did I belong and what communities did I belong to? That's on a personal level. And then on a professional level, um, all of my work has been with youth in foster care or group homes, um, juvenile justice. And a lot of that is these youth don't feel like they belong. They sometimes don't feel like they're tied to their biological families or in their, they're in homes of different cultures. Um, and that kind of fuels some of their behavior where it's not like they're trying to act out, but they're kind of just understanding like where do they belong in this world? And it could be misinterpreted, especially for youth in group homes as well. So to, to circle back, I think belonging is the foundation of just mental health and well-being. Hmm. I think you're in a crowd that would 100% agree with you. <laughs> um, and I, I really appreciate the perspectives and thank you for the, the personal um, perspective. So foundational to well-being. So when you, you I, th- I feel like you alluded to it a little bit, Vicki, talking about how some of the, 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 the youth feel some separation from their family are searching for that belonging. So can you put some words to a me like what's belonging mean like in another word like wh- wh- how would you articulate it? I think belonging kind of means being accepted for who you are, being seen um, for who you are, um, your thought patterns, and you know things that you believe in, and not feeling like you have to fit into a box. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, I was working as a foster care recruiter, so we I was going out there trying to find parents that were willing to be foster parents, and what we told those individuals was a child is not going to fill a gap in your home. Um, You need to decide that your home is going to fill a gap for a child. So we Mm. don't find children for homes. We find homes for children. And I think that's speaking to belonging of like whoever that child is, that you're going to accept them unconditionally and be able to be there for them. Mm. Oh, I love, I just, that's such a cool Mm. perspective and a totally different context than I've ever sort of been in conversation about. So I just, I'm just thinking about that. I love that sort of notion. What were, I'm curious. I know this is going off script like we always do, Brianne, because I'm following a breadcrumb. <laughs> like when you would go into a home or talk to caregivers and say that, like, I don't know, like what's the reaction from potential foster parents? So it really depends. Um, and the basic premise of foster care and adoption is loss and grief and just understanding that like, even from the parents' perspective of like, they are losing out on having a biological child or losing out on those years of carrying a child, months of carrying a child. And then for the child, they've lost connection a lot of times with their biological family. So it's like, there is pain and also there's so much joy in it as well. So that's when you kind of tease out if that foster family, if that family is ready to take that step because it is a big step to be there for a child. Um, So we have some families that have worked through it and they're like, yes, we are ready. And um, you know, we've done the work and we want to grow our family through foster care and adoption. And then you have some others that reflect back and they said, well, you know what, I'm really dealing with 
you know, issues of infertility and we haven't really worked through that or the loss or, um, you know, we're not sure we're still looking for a specific child that would fit into our family. And then that might not be the best time for them to become a foster parent or adoptive parent. Mm. But it, I, that's so, I mean, I know you and I have talked often, Vicki, often about research methods, but certainly about your research topic. I, the framing of that, that idea that the premise is, I just, it's such an interesting sort of think about sort of scarcity and abundance, right? So like coming from a place of scarcity for both, right? Because for me, it was kind of obvious for the foster youth that there'd be lost, but you, I think maybe we forget that the parents also might be experiencing a loss. So thank you for that reminder. Mm-hmm. This is an awesome conversation. I mean, I just feel like I've already thought differently about mm-hmm. the context of belonging than I've than we have before, and we've had so many episodes. So this is really great, um, Vicky. We're kind of shifting a little bit to talk about relationships, and you have mentioned several already. And I'm curious about your perspective on how critical is that belonging. To relationships. I mean, you said it's the foundation of mental health and well-being. So how does it connect then to relationships? I think it's very important in relationships, um, the sense of belonging. And it's like, um, for me in particular, relationships sometimes bring on anxiety where it's like, I feel like I have to fit a mold or act a certain way in certain environments. And so when you feel like you belong, then it's like, you can just be who you are and you're comfortable to share um, you know, anything that's going on, some of the good things, some of the bad things. So I, and I think it's really that other person being a safe space and having it be a two-way street. So I think if we go back to like fostering as well, um, the relationships, there's so many of them. It could be the child with the social worker, the child with the biological family, the child with the biological family's relatives, the foster family, the foster parent, uh, family's relative. And it could even come down to like the way that you speak about families. So like one thing we teach mm-hmm. in foster care and adoption is like, you don't want to just assume someone goes by mom or dad, or like, is that your bio family or your adoptive family? It's like, you ask them, like, how do you refer to this person? Uh, what do they feel? Com- what do you feel comfortable calling them? Um, and then going with that and not being judgmental about it. And that's very important, like sometimes in the schools too, you'll see like um, like muffins with mom or like um, day with dad. And it's like, not everyone has someone they refer to and call them mom or dad, and it could be a caregiver. And it's just like being very open in your speech about relationships as well. And not having those assumptions that everyone has the same type of relationships in their lives. Mm-hmm. That's I mean, I, I love that example, and it just speaks to something we talk about a lot, which is the power of language and the importance of using language and just being really thoughtful about the language we use in an effort to just be inclusive, right? Mm-hmm. And foster, try to set some of those conditions for belonging. So when you think about these relationships, I mean, I'm really curious about the types of connections that kids have with, with all of those people you just named. And kind of how do you see belonging as part of those connections? So um, I think belonging is important. And a lot of the research I've done is related to education. And unfortunately, a lot of times youth don't feel like they fit in or belong in the educational spaces, um, especially youth that are system involved. And that could be because of them them transitioning between different homes um, or 
them not having their, you know, main needs met. Um, so then it's hard for them to focus on education. But every time that they switch schools, they actually lose six months worth of education. So then if they've switched schools three times in a year, they basically lost the whole year. So then the relationship with that teacher or that school gets very tense as well, um, because then they might be suspended more or they might feel like they need to be in a special education class um, or they might just not understand the child's situation. So then that child might pick up that they don't belong in that school or that school district and they might start to write it off. Um, and so I think in terms of relationships, it's very important to for any person in a school setting to really get to understand the child's system and world and anything they're dealing with in the home. And then also um, the relationship between sometimes the foster family and the school. So because of legal issues, a lot of times the schools are not com communicating with the foster families and they might not even know that the child switched homes. So they might be calling the prior foster family or they might be just be calling the social worker. And then that foster parent who could be a source of support for this child then is left out of the loop of what's going on in the school. So um, for relationships, it's really important that children and youth have a supportive adult in their life um, and that that adult is kind of long-term. So even like um, some of the organizations, nonprofit organizations such as Big Brothers, Big Sisters, they don't let you be a big unless you could commit a year. Because if you commit less than a year, then you could actually be re-traumatizing that child of another person that's leaving them. So I think just relationships are very important um, and it helps people feel like they belong and wherever they feel accepted and belong is where they're going to thrive. Mm -hmm. And just to go a little bit more on that, um, sometimes they might be feeling accepted or like they belong with youth that are not engaged in school anymore. So then they feel mm -hmm. um, pulled out of the school. And then at that point, that could be contributing to the lower graduation rates as well. So it's like just making sure that those spaces and those relationships are accepting. Hmm. I'm just seeing like, cause you, you, your intro sort of talked about system and you said it in your response, this sort of like the child system. And all I was thinking of was like these like intersecting and overlapping different systems, right. And trying to find I don't know. It just feels like lots of layers. And it made me think Vicki about, it feels like there are different depths of belonging, right? There's sort of the surfacey kind of, we see you, um, but do you really see me because you're not talking to my new foster family? Do you really see me because you don't realize that the people who are not in this system are actually seeing me more than you do, right? Like all of the things that are at play. Um, yeah, that's just, I don't necessarily have a question. I'm just I'm just listening and observing. And, and I have to say, like, I feel the frustration around simple, what seems simple around like paperwork and naming and language, how important that is and how quickly a family and a youth can be turned off if you're using, if you're making assumptions about, um, you know, how they present or how they present with their family. So, um, yeah. So I guess along those lines, I really want to hear a little bit about, um, or a little bit more about your nonprofit, Inspiring Futures. And so as we think about these sort of colliding systems that are trying to create, you know, belonging, the depth of belonging, I'm wondering what the role, like where, what's the role of your nonprofit in that kind of work? Can you just give us, I don't know, a glimpse into that work? Yes. Um, so Inspiring Futures, we work on the individual level, but also at the system level. So we start working with youth as young as 14 
and they get paired with a mental health specialist and an educational specialist. And we spend a lot of time building rapport with that youth, getting to know their needs, um, trying to figure out, and, and it's, it's strength-based in the sense of um, we figure out what their strengths are and then build on that. So it's like, okay, you might not enjoy going to school every day, getting up early, but you love to draw. So like, um, can we figure out a way that we could incorporate drawing in the morning so that you can get yourself to school on time and be in a, a good space, something that'll get you excited to wake up in the morning. Um, and then we work on the transition between high school and college. So we'll work with that youth, um, talk to all of the systems involved, the guidance counselor, the teacher, the parents, um, and then work with them on applying to colleges and then work with them through college. So we are acting as that bridge and then helping them navigate the institution when they get there. So I'm sure you know, like the biggest drop off point if someone gets to college is between freshman and sophomore year. And that's because they get to the institution and they just feel like, I don't know how to navigate it. I haven't experienced that college going culture. I don't know how to who to talk to. I don't fit in with these peers, especially for someone who's been in foster care. They might have been in a lot of places. And then a lot of times people at universities, they might have grown up with one family, maybe they're middle class, um, middle socioeconomic status or upper socioeconomic status and it's like they don't feel like they belong there so then you have that high dropout point. So the other thing we do as an organization is we provide trainings to foster families and nonprofits to train on how to do a college going culture in the youth environment because it could be something as simple as like putting up college posters on the wall like wearing college shirts taking them to see a college. Um, so like how to create that cultivation that you do belong in college and then we work with um, also colleges to say with their professors of how to create a sense of inclusion um, with their support staff. So we have a really great partnership with the university here in New York, and they allowed us to come train a bunch of their administrators and then work with some of their students um, and just create that safe space that it's like you have people on your side if you're having trouble navigating the institution. Mm -hmm. And then we are a newer nonprofit, so everything is mobile and virtual, but we are working on getting a space that we could provide like the youth a sense where they can just go and hang out and feel that sense of belonging and inclusion, doing workshops, groups. Um, so that's in the in the making. Um, and that that space is designed, it's going to be LGBTQ specific as well, because the majority of our clients are LGBTQ and it's going to be designated in an area that's actually an LGBTQ quote unquote desert here in New York, where it's like they don't really have the services for those youth. Mm -hmm. um, so hopefully it'll be a space that they can go to. Mm -hmm. So something I always love to ask guests, and I think partly it's selfishly because um, we try on this podcast because we can we can all geek out on research and and sort of the, you know, the, the literature. And so we try mm -hmm. to offer some practical sort of discussions and ideas. And so that's where this question comes out of. And so I'm really curious, you know, especially given what you said earlier around this premise of loss, what are sort of the markers or signals or expressions that you're like, okay, like either you're sharing with a youth to say, you know, these are ways to know that belonging is, is present or there are possibilities for belonging or how do you recognize that there's a possibility for belonging? Like, what do you see as signals or markers? I think you could look for markers in the environment you're in, but also within yourself. So I know for myself, like if I feel like I don't belong somewhere or, or it might not be a safe space, 
I get anxious and I could feel it in my body. Like this Mm. doesn't seem like a space that I belong. So you can kind of read your own cues of how you're feeling. That would be one marker. Mm -hmm. And then the other is like, if you're looking forward to talking to those people or going to those places. And if you're not, then really questioning, like it could be a microaggression. It could be something they said. It could be just some, something that you're picking up on, but it's like really trust yourself and how you're responding to the situation. Um, And then if you feel like, it is a a safe space or a space where you can belong, then you might feel like, okay, I could come as I am, be myself, and I'm not going to be judged. It's a non-judgmental space. Yeah. This is a a little bit of a riff on the next question. So like, I'm just asking you on the fly because I'm just really curious. So I'm just wondering, in your experience, either personally or professionally, Vicky, what do you think is the hardest part around the work of belonging in this context, in this professional context with like, you know, youth who have, I can't imagine the things that these young people have experienced and seen. So what do you think is the hardest part about sort of creating an inclusive space that leaves the possibility of feeling belonging? I think the most important part or the most difficult part is managing expectations. Um, And it's like really looking at what does success look like? Um, And I was talking to an executive director of another nonprofit and he was saying like for his programs for youth that are not in foster care, they have high attendance rates and they look at like the outcomes of those programs. But then for the program that of the youth that have foster care involvement, a marker of success is attendance. And I've talked to other nonprofit leaders that say the same thing. And it's like people speak with their feet. Um, young people speak with their feet. And it's like, if they feel like they belong and accepted, they'll show up. And it's like, if they if they don't, then they're not gonna show up. So it's like, you might say, well, they're showing up, but what are they doing? What are the outcomes? But it's like, you need to take it a step back and say, are they even feeling safe enough to come? Um, and I think it's like just managing those expectations on an individual level with the social workers. Um, A lot of times they have a lot of expectations for the families and the children, but it's like also acknowledging those little wins, like, okay, so their attendance improved. Okay, so they um, didn't get suspended this week. Um, So they were able to express themselves in a healthy manner. And it's like celebrating those little things so that the youth don't feel targeted, like I can never measure up or the bar is always moving of what is expected of me. I just love like how you you haven't heard it, Vicky, because it literally just dropped today. But I love how when Brianne and I interview different people, we have these connections and themes across episodes. And yesterday with someone we interviewed, we were just talking about, you know, how do you know if if if, if belonging is subjective, then really I can't know if what I'm doing is working. And so we started talking about like, what are all the measures? And I just love the idea of speaking with your feet if you show up, right? Just mm-hmm. keep showing up. So I wrote that and circled it like 10 times. So I'm going to, I'm going to hold on to that. <laughs> so, so thank you for that thought. <laughs> Vicki, we've talked about belonging in different contexts, right? In, in schools and foster homes, different places where these kids find themselves. Um, what do you think or how does this all connect to belonging to, to yourself, right? Because we're talking about belonging in different places and feeling like you do or do not belong. But where is the belonging to self in this picture, do you think? 
I think it's at the core of everything. Um, and we could take it back to like being LGBTQ, like the coming out process for being LGBTQ is like, first you have to come out to yourself um, and then you might be able to come out to close friends and then you might be able to come out to family and maybe outside world and you have to continuously come out. But it's like, if you don't come out to yourself and say, I am who I am and that's okay, it's gonna be hard to even relate to anyone else. Um, and I think, it's a process for sure. Um, and I think youth in foster care, it's the same process of like understanding that there is nothing wrong with them. Like if their family looks different, if their family is disrupted as, at a young age, like a lot of times people internalize that and they say, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my family? Why am I here? And it's like coming to terms with nothing is wrong with you. Sometimes um, systems are in play or sometimes safety is in play, but until you could come to that piece with yourself that I am fine just the way I am, then that is the foundation to belonging with other people and belonging in spaces as well. And it's a very hard work and it's a very hard journey for someone to get to that place, but I do think it's the core. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that makes sense. And I just am wondering about kind of the development of belonging, right? So with some other guests, we've talked about little kids and how when they're young, maybe that sense of belonging comes from people around them telling them and giving them those, those affirmations and providing a supportive environment and things like that. And that there's a lot of reliance on that external, those external messages and feelings. And I just wonder, where is that for kids in the foster system who are moved around a lot? And how does that develop? Who are the supports? I think that that's a very important question. Um, I know that like every foster parent is expected to take like 30 hours worth of training. And some of it talks about how to talk to a youth about um, like their situation and belonging, but it's like, it's, it's up to the parents if they're going to internalize those messages and then be able to effectively do that with the youth. Um, when I lived in Los Angeles, there was a wonderful program um, in, in the community that it was a Saturday program and it was um, for any youth who had been in foster care, they could come all Saturday and just like hang out with volunteers, go on field trips, eat food. And the whole premise was that you don't need to come out as being in foster care. You don't need to say anything about who you are. It's already understood. Everyone already here knows where you come from. Everyone has that same system experience and you can just be who you are and leave that at the door. And I think that that's another thing is like to just be with people that have experienced the same type of um, situations. I know for me as a foster parent, like when I felt like the most um, accepted or like the like I was thriving was when I was able to talk to other foster parents that were going through some of the similar challenges because it is very unique. Um, so um, in terms of whose job is it, it's everyone's job, but I think like, you know, it's, it's a um, kind of like a reflection of like the social worker should hypothetically be supporting the family. So then the family can then hypothetically support the child and then also relying on natural supports if they're able to have connections to their communities, their biological families, like the more connections and the more places that they feel accepted, the better. Yeah, thank you. And you kind of, you're, you're sort of leaning into the next question, but you know, we're really, wondering about some of those strategies, I guess, you know, just what does this really look like? And you said the trainings and learning to, to talk with the kids about their backgrounds and where they are and, and that they do belong. 
Can you elaborate and give us a little bit more explanation on kind of what what these strategies look like in your context? Because it's really so unique. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think um, not assuming that the person knows that it's a safe space or that they do, um, that it is a place where they are going to be accepting, but to explicitly state that and say, whatever you say here, we are, you know, non-judgmental about it. We want to learn from you um, really being able to um, like explicitly state that um, they are not being judged. And then also like, as they're saying different things, they might test out. Um, I'm going to say this and see what the reaction is. So being very mindful of how you react to things. And it's like, you don't want to seem super happy about some things and then super critical about other things, but it's mm -hmm. like really trying to be neutral and be that like a space where it's like, whatever you say, you know, it's okay. And it's, it's a safe place for you. Um, so I think that's one strategy is just really being non-judgmental. The other is really giving as much choice as possible to the youth and the family. So it's like families and systems are so um, under a microscope all the time. And they're used to people coming in and saying, um, you need to, you know, keep your medicine locked up and you need to make sure that the kid gets to this appointment at this time and make sure that your cleaning supplies are up top or whatever, but it's like really leaning on them as the experts in their lives and saying, what works for you? Why doesn't this work for you? Um, instead of coming in in a space of like, I'm the expert and we're here to tell you what to do, but really leaning on them as the experts. Um, so that's another approach. Hmm. And then also like having humor, because like so many things are <laughs> so difficult in life. Um, but it's like, if you could find a little nugget of something that's funny or humorous is very important um, to bring some levity to the situation because um, you never know how a child experiences something or the family and being able to, you know, make it a little fun sometimes. It's funny, Vicki, to hear you talk about that. So very different context, talking about foster youth and the foster care system and higher education and faculty, very different, of course. And yet, um, Brianne and I just did a um, like a workshoppy kind of thing with faculty at the university, and the theme was voice and choice, mm -hmm. and this idea that as you engage and facilitate class classes, that you know bringing voice and choice, we argue can create inclusion and opportunities for belonging, and so it's so it's so curious to me that you used those very words. Um, mm -hmm. to think about how systems should be approaching caregivers and the youth. And so um, one thing that I think Brianne and I have been really looking at um, hard lately, and I, I'd, lo I'd love to get your thoughts on this, is that strategy is wonderful. We can, rash we can make sense of it. There's literature to support why those kinds of tactics work. The one thing that I think, at least I, I won't speak for Brianne, the one thing I used to assume around those kinds of approaches is how the facilitator would show up. And what I mean, and so what I'm, what I'm sort of connecting that to is, it seems to me, perhaps if I use the same logic, that caregivers, guardians, foster parents, however they identify, their, their work, their individual self-work whether it's as a family system or individually seems really fundamental to sort of all the things playing out in the ways you described it. So I wondered if you could talk about like, I don't know, what's your reaction? What are your experiences with that? 
So you're asking, how would you facilitate a voice in choice? Well, I'm just wondering, like, how much of the work that, you know, your nonprofit does and the foster system does is about educating and supporting the caregiver so they can show up in ways so that voice and choice is possible with you, with like the youth that they can, does that make sense? Like, the, I feel like there's a lot of like self-work and training for the facilitator. Um, and I'm just wondering like, what's been your experience with that? If maybe, and maybe it's not true. I'm just wondering. No, absolutely. That, um, that makes a lot of sense. So what you're saying is that, um, you know, if, a, if a family doesn't feel supported by the system or the agency, they're not going to be able to show up and provide that environment for the child. And it's interesting because I've spoken to a lot of foster parents that like they started to be a foster parent and then they became disillusioned and stopped. And mm -hmm. there's, you know, talks of which agencies are more supportive of which or which ones, you know, don't support you. And it's like, if you talk to other foster parents or other caregivers, they'll say like the agency makes or breaks your experience. And without that support, um, it's hard to support a child. And so like, even for adoption, 10% of adoptions disrupt at some point, 10 to 15%. Mm -hmm. And that, and those are people who said, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to commit to a permanency for this child, but things get really difficult. Mm -hmm. And the support for the adoptive family sometimes differs than the support for a foster family. Mm -hmm. um, so something that's really helpful is like parent support groups, um, creating your community of people that you can vent to, that you can call. Um, if the agency has a crisis line, if they're able, if you're able to call that line just to, um, you know, just to vent or talk about a situation at any time is very important. Mm -hmm. um, when I was in Los Angeles, a lot of my kids were enrolled in the wraparound program, which was um, a program that had four people that would show up at our house every single week, um, sometimes three times a week. And like one person was the facilitator, one person was the parent partner, and they would talk specifically to me as a parent. And that was invaluable because it was like they, the the criteria to be a parent partner was that they had lived experience mm -hmm. as being a parent to a, ch a child that was system involved and their perspective. And like you said, just feeling belong belonging and seen by that person, they didn't even need to do anything. They just had to show up and listen. Um, so I think that, and during the pandemic, it was very hard um, because a lot of those support groups dissolved um, because they weren't able to go virtual. And then there was a lot more kids that were being moved around out of their homes. Um, and then some of the kids that were in college weren't able to stay in the colleges and they had nowhere to go. Um, and there was like a critical need for foster parents. Yeah. And so um, with system support and being able to have more parent coaches, more people with lived experiences, um, peer support, I think creating that infrastructure for the caregivers is very important. Um, and that will help the kids thrive as well. And that, that is why Inspiring Features does have a caregiver support piece where it's like, you're not alone in this. We're here. We hear what you're going through and we're going to coach you to figure out how to navigate this and also be a supportive place for that child. Yeah. It's so interesting, Brianne. I'm thinking back to our conversation with um, Jillian Danielle about learning differences and they came on and talked about sort of belonging and thinking about kids that have, you know, are diagnosed with dyslexia. And one of the things that Jilly did her research on was um, similar to what you're describing is how parents and caregivers feel when their child is diagnosed with a learning difference and mm -hmm. how they're sort of 
swirling, right? And so it's interesting to think about this work more broadly that we talk about creating conditions for kids to feel a sense of belonging. And sometimes it's the working with the adults who are going to be working with the kids to, to help with that. So, and their own, you know, to your own words that belonging to self is, is key, right. To doing this work. So I just, it's mm -hmm. interesting how it sort of continues to be a thread and regardless of context. Um, yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's I... kind of coming up as these like Maslow, right? I mean, I yeah. just feel like it's it just across contexts, there are obviously contextual differences and that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. And the work that Vicky's doing is different than the work that we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. But yeah. when you take it up a level, I don't know, Vicky said, you know, to be non-judgmental and, you know, as a strategy to explicitly state that like we value you for who you are and your contribution and everything, that's designing a relationship, right? So to yeah. establish that, that's what we do when we Absolutely. do PD and, you know, Julie and Danielle, I feel like there are just so many themes that are coming up across these episodes and across context that just demonstrates the humanness of this need, I think, to belong. Yeah. I love that idea, Vicki, when you said when the U LGBTQIA plus youth would enter a space and it was already assumed that you identified in that way. So there wasn't, we see you. And, and I know this is not at all like being a foster youth. I just want to be clear. I have to tell you though, what, what came up for me when you said that, and you guys are going to laugh and it really has, it's, it's, it's so silly, but it's so resonant is it reminded me of the first time I walked into a club, a gay dance club. And the reason it does is because I walked in there and I felt this sense of connection because like everybody's like, we see you, how you identify, mm -hmm. right? Like you're here for a reason. And so anyway, I think that's really powerful to think about how do we create spaces when people walk into them, they already feel seen. They don't have to say that I identify this way or that, you know, we're creating conditions where there is a sense of being seen. That was, that was really, I'm going to sit, that's going to sit with me for a while. So I, I'm grateful that you, you said it in that way. So thanks for that. It's very mm -hmm. interesting. So we love, as we conclude our conversations, we love to always check in with our wonderful guests and just say, you know, first, absolute gratitude for your willingness to come on. I can only imagine how busy you are with all the things and all the balls you have in the air these days. Um, and we also just like to give you a chance if there was a question we didn't ask or something you wanted to say, is there, are there any last words that you have um, before we come to a close? No, I just wanted to thank you for giving me the space um, to be able to talk about this work and about youth in general. And just, I really appreciate coming onto your show and being able to have a conversation about it. Absolutely. Anytime, anytime you want to come on, it would be, <laughs> we'd love to hear, especially as you continue to grow the nonprofit, we would love to hear maybe early next fall, um, you know, an update on where you are, what you're learning and what you're noticing. So all right, Brianne, thanks for being here. Vicki, thank you so much for being on. And dear listeners, thank you for listening. Be well and be good to each other. This has been another episode of Tell Me This. Take care. Oh
Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.